One thing I did early on that I think really helped was I had all my chapter summaries just like in my file, in my Scrivener file, which is what I work in. And I would read, read those to sort of remind myself, like, this is what this chapter is supposed to be doing. And then at some point, I boiled those things down into one word or one theme. That's exciting. I think that is one of the most exciting things I've heard on our entire 102 episodes. In the writing of it, what kept me going was that I bought my own argument <laughs> early on. Uh-huh. I was like, no, I'm right about this. It is this important. It uh-huh. is a big deal. Hello and welcome to Emerging Form. I'm Rosemary Wattola-Tromer. And I'm Christy Oshwanden. Hey, Rosemary. Hey, Christy. I'm excited about our guest today, but before we jump into talking about the moon with Rebecca Boyle, uh, you know, we used to do Creative Sparks. We did. I Do you have a Creative Spark right now? You know, I don't. I haven't. I feel like it's not that my creativity is dead at the moment or anything. I'm... I'm Working very vigorously in my uh, very minor spare time right now, <laughs> finishing up this project, but I'm at the point of it where it's not the creative part is kind of, yeah, there's almost like two aspects to a lot of projects like this. There's the very creative part where you're figuring out what it is and kind of coming up with the thing and finding the form. And then there's the sort of worker part where you're like, okay, it's very mechanical, where it's just like, okay, now I need to like sort this out or do the editing where it's a little bit creative, but it's more just sort of like, mechanistic. I I don't know if that's even the right way, but you know what I'm talking about. There's different flavors. And so I'm kind of in that part with this project, which is great because it means that I'm nearing the end, which is really exciting. But I've been thinking as I'm wrapping up that project, like I would like to find something this year, some sort of like regular creative outlet, something that's maybe a daily or daily-ish practice that's just a little like noodling around um, creative thing. And I don't know what it is. I haven't quite found it yet. You know, there was one year where I did this where I was just going to dance every day, even if it's just for like a minute. And that was great. You know, maybe I could do that again. But I feel like I want something new. And I keep thinking, oh, I want to maybe I'll I'll learn to sketch and try drawing. And I just have no talent or ability at this. And so (laughs) it just feels a little too intimidating. I mean, this is like the second year in a row, I think I've thought, okay, maybe I'll get a sketchbook and I'll just sketch a little something every day. But it just feels a little too daunting. So I think I need something that feels like, I think what I'm looking for is something that is easy, like it needs to be very low stakes, but also something that doesn't take a lot of effort, because what it's doing is just kind of lubing the wheels, you know, greasing the creative. uh, I'm going to totally mix metaphors, but you know what I'm talking about. I need something that's just sort of that. And I think for that reason, it probably shouldn't be writing, but I'm not sure what it is. So if you have any ideas and listeners, please give me ideas. You're you're casting out your net for creative daily practices. I am. I am. Yeah. How about you, Rosemary? I don't know. I think I'm thinking maybe you should do a TikTok thing like Chris and Zach did. Oh, gosh. That, <laughs> that sounds I mean, I That's love, really daunting. I mean, it isn't. I mean, after hearing their experience, it actually sounds it actually sounds much more fun than I would have ever thought. But I also I don't know. Let me think about that. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Well, let's talk about our guest today. I am so excited about her. Uh, 
Rebecca Boyle is a journalist who has reported from particle accelerators, genetic sequencing labs, bat caves, the middle of a lake, the tops of mountains, and the retractable domes of some of the Earth's largest telescopes. But she hasn't yet visited on assignment the subject of her new book, Our Moon, How Earth's Celestial Companion Transformed the Planet, Guided Evolution, and Made Us Who We Are. And she's based in Colorado Springs, Colorado, and is a contributing editor at Scientific American, a contributing writer at Quantum Magazine and The Atlantic, and a columnist at Atlas Obscura. Let's bring her on. Welcome to Emerging Forum, Becky. Thanks for having me. Thank you for joining us, Becky. I'm glad you're here. And your book is beautiful. I am so excited to have you here. This book is so amazing. It's got a gorgeous cover. I I also have to just say I'm so envious that you have a little schematic of your dog on the cover. (laughs) Like, what writer doesn't want that? Yeah, I don't think that was uh, intentional. I mean, it was we we talked the cover was a whole process. It took a long time to settle on something that was like reflected the book and how much it's about and the moon influencing us was a thing I really wanted to represent. And then my editor found this a tarot card. And this is actually a tarot card designed by a Portuguese art studio that we bought the rights to. And then the color scheme was a whole thing. And in many tarot cards, there's like, you know, wolves barking at the moon, but these are dogs, which I love because that represents people, you know, they're pets. Like one of them is wearing a collar and it's very obvious. And so it's not just like the traditional wolves howling at the moon kind of image. It's like they're, it implies humanity too. And it, yeah, it happens to be my golden retriever there on the corner. <laughs> I love it. Can you just tell us, Becky, a little bit about the genesis of this book? Because I know, you know, you and I have known each other for quite a while and you've thrown around some other book ideas. Uh, how did you end up settling on this and how, to, how did a book about the moon come to be? Yeah, I, I mean, I write about the moon a lot just as an astronomy writer and I feel like I kind of have a soft spot for it. I always have. And even in astronomy, it's kind of this like forgotten or ignored thing it's actually like really annoying for professional astronomers it's super bright you know and like if you're trying to study distant galaxies or star clusters like it's you have to do your observations when the moon is not up because it's just so bright it floods your eyepiece and so it's kind of you know a joke among us professional astronomers and i always am like but it's great the moon is cool like like defending it and then I, I wrote a lot about how it was formed, and this is still like a pretty active debate in planetary science. And then I kind of felt like there's a lot more to say about what the moon has done and what it has represented to us. And that's sort of the book. I mean, it, it started out as more of like an appreciation of, of what the moon has meant to humanity. And here's all these interesting connections. But then as I was researching it and then writing it, it was more like, no, this is like an argument <laughs> that like th- we wouldn't be here without it. You know, this is like a new version of human history through this new lens. And now I feel like a polemicist because <laughs> <laughs> I'm like, I'm, the book is me like grabbing you by the lapel and being like, did you know that the moon has done all of this stuff? And if we didn't have it, it would never have happened this way or at all. And yeah, so it's it's now it's much more of a like, 
a new a new history. Well, and I think it's exciting. And and from what I understand about the cover, you know, with the with the tarot card and the dog and this kind of humanity and the culture, so that you're, it's so much more than the science. It's really this, uh, like you're saying, human history around who we are because the moon is the moon. That's so exciting. Yeah. Yeah, it's de- it's definitely a science book in that, you know, it, there's a lot of science in it and it has a lot to tell about the history of Earth and the geology and geography of Earth, how the moon has shaped the land. But it's really a history book too and it's a philosophy book <laughs> and it's a comparative religion book. You know, there's there's a lot in here everything. that's beyond <laughs> Yeah, I mean it's it is, and that's kind of the argument is like it's it's the story of everything, and and I had to almost pare it down in a few ways because it's it became encyclopedic, you know, and you know no one wants to read an encyclopedia. <laughs> so, well, some of us, do. Uh, you know, <laughs> well, you know, yeah, my eight year old actually likes to, but you know, <laughs> will you will you read to us a little bit from your book, please? So yeah, let me. I'll read you kind of the first few lines. This is from the first chapter. It's called A World Apart. The moon is different. It is nowhere like Earth, which is a watery bubble improbably bursting with life in a universe of emptiness. The moon is barren and has been throughout its four and a half billion year eternity of its companionship with this planet. The moon is silent. It plays host to no cricket chorus, coyote calls, or night wind sailing through pines. It is dry, at least on the outside. There are no waves lapping on shores, no soft rains, no snow. It is a crater-pocked wasteland that smells of doused firecrackers. The moon is scorching hot during its long day and freezing cold during its long night. The lunar landscape is grayscale, but flecked with shades of tan, chocolate, beach sand, chalk, gold, spicy mustard ochre, and in the words of Apollo 11 astronaut Michael Collins, a cheery rose hue. Sunlight on the airless moon plays tricks on human eyesight, warping a moonwalker's sense of crater depth, hillside angles, and making tiny slopes look like vertiginous peaks. All is monotony. There is no blue, and there is no green. No sunlight scatters through a watery atmosphere. No lichens splotch the moon's rocks. No bacteria grow in its dirt to help plants flourish. There are no birds overhead, ants underfoot, or any other kind of animal anywhere. On the moon there is nothing and no one. Until Apollo, no creatures ever looked up at the moon's black sky and wondered about their place in it all. No one ever stared up at the crescent earth and thought about visiting. There is no culture except the one we brought. That is such a lovely beginning. Such a great introduction. It's so evocative. And very poetic, very sense-oriented. You you really took us there. Thank you. We just got to take a little vacation on the moon for a few minutes (laughs) and stay warm. Yeah. You know, Becky, I just heard you recently. This is so random, but on the Vox podcast talking about uh, moon dust. And like we've all heard about moon dust, but I don't think I realized just how much of a pain it was and how difficult it made things for the astronauts. And like just this reality of like actually being on the moon, this dust is a real problem like it's everywhere and you can't get it off yeah it makes it sound really unpleasant actually like maybe i don't want to go there yeah the moon is really terrible (laughs) (laughs) like it's you know it's it's beautiful and i will defend it but i don't want to be on it i think it would it would like to kill me and all of us 
So I have a question, and that is, so this is because this is such an all-encompassing topic, and you sort of said earlier, you know, became encyclopedic, you know, you don't want to cover everything. How do you, how do you go about writing a book like this and researching it? Like, where do you even start? I can imagine you sitting there with your book contract and going, oh, crap, what do I do now? Like, the moon, <laughs> okay, like, you know, yeah. how, where do I even yeah. start? Can you just walk us through your process with that a little bit of like taking it from this gigantic topic down to like, you know, this beautiful narrative that you, you created? Yeah, it pretty much was just like that, where I, I mean, I had a proposal that was pretty detailed. And in writing it, you know, every chapter summary was like a page, which is not very much. And it was like, I kind of had a sense for telling the story of human history through the moon was kind of what I wanted to do. But it was going to be these sort of like vignettes and scenes of people interacting with it in some way or another, and how we end up learning this history that we have with it. So it was almost in backward. It When I first wrote the proposal, it was like, life is, you know, evolves, then we evolve into humanity. Here's this whole section on how we invent civilization and religion and philosophy and science. And then it ended in here's how the moon got here. And here's how we know that story. And I did a lot of travel, but right before, luckily before COVID. Uh -huh. Good timing. And yeah, I was very lucky. The last travel I was going to do, I couldn't go because of COVID. I wanted to go down to Navajo Nation in Arizona and go meet with some Navajo elders. And, and there's a whole section in the book about that anyway, but I couldn't go because they closed the reservation to visitors during the pandemic. So some of it had to change. But then I was, you know, sitting here writing it during the pandemic <laughs> and then like with a newborn and was like, I don't know if this is the right, you know, sort of flow. And it doesn't make sense to not have the moon exist and, you know, how it formed until the end. So we re restructured the entire book, basically. Like I had to rewrite several chapters or smooth things around a lot. And the book now starts with how the moon got here and then how we all got here too. And the end is Apollo. And I didn't want it to be an Apollo book. There's like 100 Apollo books. And a lot came out in 2019 on the 50th anniversary of the first moon landing. And, you know, there's a, a lot anyone can say about the Apollo landings and... I do too, but it's not what the book is about. It's, you know, that story is inseparable from the story of the moon, but I didn't want it to be the main story. So yeah, there was a, there was a lot of like, at the end, it became a lot of paring down. <laughs> My editor was very helpful in being like, okay, this is really interesting, but is it really in service of your narrative? Is it really in service of the story of the moon? Because, you know, all, I think a lot of writers, we like to digress. And then there's like, but did you know this cool thing? And like, <laughs> let me tell you this crazy thing. And there was so much of that. And um, I kind of, I bounce around, you know, all of human history. I bounce around all of, you know, cultural history throughout the whole world. And like, at some point it just became, it becomes too much. And so I had to pare down a lot. And um, there's still a lot in here, <laughs> a lot. But it's now more of a story, I think, than it was, which is good. And so you mentioned that this this traveling around was part of your research process. But what was tell us more about your research process and how it was different than research you've done for articles. Yeah, it was. I mean, someone told me early on that writing a chapter is like writing a feature story. 
And I, I tried to remember that and it ended up being really untrue for me. <laughs> <laughs> because in part because it's like the chapters have to hang together in a way that makes sense and they kind of follow each other and you build on things that come earlier in the book. But also every chapter is, you know, they're all distinct from each other, but they all relate to the whole book. And so it was really not the same as like researching a reported, you know, feature. One thing I did early on that I think really helped was I had all my chapter summaries just like in my file, in my Scrivener file, which is what I work in. And I would read, read those to sort of remind myself, like this is what the chapter is supposed to be doing. And then at some point I boiled those things down into one word or one theme. And so, you know, the religion chapter is really about power. Like that was the main word. That was the key word for me writing that chapter. And I, that's what I wanted to get across was like the moon gave people power over each other and it gave them power over the sky and power over their lives. And, you know, the, I argue that like it's it's central to the development of organized religion because people worship the moon. People use the moon to mark time. It's one of the first early deities in Mesopotamia it's the most important one for a long time. But really what ultimately that means is that people derive this new form of power over one another. And that's what that chapter really is about. And so each chapter has that sort of like one word theme. And I think that really helped me just make sure that I stuck to the story that would fit that theme that would like convey that message. And that was important because otherwise it was like so sprawling, yeah. you know. Well, and it sounds like it wasn't just a theme, like it, it was like the underpinning of what's really at stake in this chapter. Yes. Yeah, exactly. That's exciting. I think that is one of the most exciting things I've heard on our entire 102 episodes. I mean, just a, this idea of finding a like a single focus word, or maybe it sounds like also sometimes a phrase, that helps you really stay true true to what you're in service of in in your writing yeah it was it was like a guidepost for me and you know hopefully as people read it it's it ends up being that for readers too where they sort of figure you know figure out like oh this is what she's trying to argue <laughs> you know but yeah it was really that was important to me and it's funny like i i have made a lot of friends in the there's a, a slack group of other writers whose books come out next year. So it's 2024 debuts and they're almost all fiction. And some of them are really amazing. And I've learned a lot about storytelling and, nar and narrative and dialogue and stuff by talking to some of these authors. And I've realized even more firmly how much I could never write fiction, <laughs> I think, <laughs> uh -huh. because I'm such a nonfiction thinker and like everything in, in this book was in service of the truth. And then what I think is the, the story which is that the moon is responsible for everything that's ever happened here. But sort of boiling it down to those one word themes or one word, you know, markers really helped me do that. And I don't know if that would work for me as well in a, in a fiction setting. Maybe it would. I love, I love that approach though. I mean, I'm, I'm going to totally borrow that and, and recommend that because it is, it is clarifying, right? Like figuring out, it's kind of, you know, finding those guideposts and the, you know, it's almost like finding your nearest star a little bit. Mm -hmm. a lot. Um, what was the most challenging part of writing this book? <laughs> I mean, I, I could answer that in a lot of different ways. And uh, I mean, I, I wrote it during the pandemic with no childcare and my <laughs> then five year, four year old, then five year old was uh -huh. in preschool 
preschool went away <laughs> and then she was home. Mm-hmm. Um, we found a sitter who was amazing and wonderful. And I could never have done this without her. And she played with Abby outside every day that summer. And, you know, she was amazing. And so I wrote every day and I had my kid here most of the time. And then by the time I finished a first draft of it, I was pregnant. And that was a big surprise (laughs) in lots of ways. (laughs) That was, I was told that was not possible. So it was very surprising. And then I was pregnant during COVID and then like kind of working on some early edits. Mm -hmm. And then I had a baby (laughs) and had no childcare and was working through like developmental edits, like wearing her. I have a picture somewhere that I'm going to like tweet at some point of like me wearing her in like a carrier standing at my desk, (laughs) like trying to write the book trying to edit the book and like uh-huh. her little head is like here um, <laughs> oh my god that is so, that, so that was like very challenging <laughs> and you know a lot of this was written at night when my kids were both asleep a lot of it was edited at night or on weekends when my husband was home and then that was you know that was hugely challenging and then apart from the fact that it was like i kind of thought at some point i might have bit off more than i could chew like i this book was not meant to be this like tome that it had become and so it was a it was just a lot of effort I think as a writer to like make it make sense make it readable make it fun but not make it boring and not make it you know overwhelming but make it comprehensive like sort of having this tension the whole time of like thoroughness you know not leaving anything or anyone out that I felt like is really important but also keeping it slim enough that it was readable and digestible that was hard and it just took a long time to get to that point my editor was amazing with that she was very hands-on and I also learned that a lot of people don't really get that experience in nonfiction. like editors are helpful with like overall sort of like schematics of the book and they're and they're good about some developmental feedback but my editor was really hands-on which I wanted and she was you know incredibly helpful with helping me see what this book was and to get it there. First of all, congratulations. I mean, really to get through, (laughs) to get through that kind of a, you know, all that trauma at once, you know, and having newborns and all the different, you know, demands on your time and energy and to also then be committed to a book at the same time, I think is, I don't know, it says a lot about about your ability to follow through. Was there anything that was the most satisfying or enjoyable part of writing it that just kept you going? Yeah, I think in in the in the writing of it, what kept me going was that I bought my own argument <laughs> early on. <laughs> I was like, no, I'm right about this. It is this important. It is a big deal, you know, and I was like, I need to make sure that I get that across. Like I, I really believed it. I do believe that, you know, human history would not have been what it is if we did not have the moon. And it's our experience is singular in the cosmos as far as we know. And I think the moon's a big reason why. And I don't think I've seen that argument made before really. And, you know, I mean, maybe there's some scientists who, who talk about how it's important and, you know, how it sort of stabilizes earth's, rotational axis that's part of the book but it's so much more than that and I became just really thoroughly convinced of that 
of its importance. And that was really what kept me going was being like, no, I need people to see what I see. <laughs> and like, I will get them there. I will make sure. <laughs> and um, yeah, and I, I think that that was sort of the main, if the whole book has one theme, you know, if I was boiling it all down to one thing, it's it's that. It's that the moon is responsible for everything that's ever happened here. And we need to think about what that means. And that's kind of the upshot of the book is like, what do we owe the moon now? If the moon has done all of this for us, has given us all of these ways that we conceptualize ourselves and our place in the universe, and it literally created you know, the, the ability of life to evolve onto land, like backboned animals came out onto land with the tide. You know, it's it's so fundamental to everything that's our history. What are we going to do to it now? Are we really just going to like strip mine it and like put a, you know, a settlement up there. I don't know if I think that's the best way to do it. And I think at the very least, we need to have a conversation about that and to sit and just sit with this knowledge of what the moon has given us. And maybe that will give us some sort of new appreciation for it. And, and that will help us think more thoughtfully about what to do with it in the future. I love that passion that you're bringing to it and this sort of sense of urgency of like, I found this really cool thing. I really want to share it with all of you. Like it's almost this impulse to share. Becky, I have a final question for you. And that is, what will success look like for this book for you? You know, have you thought about this? Like what will make you feel like you achieved what you set out to do with this book? That's an evolving question for me. You know, I, I think at one point it was like, good reviews would be really helpful. You know, I would think I did it. At some point it was like, I hope my parents like it, you know, and, and some <laughs> more personal kind of like feeling in my history teacher from high school, who like is the reason I have a degree in history, you know, I hope Mr. Tilton reads it and likes it, <laughs> you know, but I, I don't know. I think just the fact that it exists and now it will be there and I'm, I'm starting to hear from people and like NASA has reached out to me and wanting to do a course for Artemis people about what the moon represents. And I think like if it, if it can sort of exist as a narrative history of humanity and as a document that tells the moon story, then I will feel very good. I think one thing that made me feel really good was uh, like when, when you go looking for blurbs, you know, you have to ask people like what they think of it. And that was like not super fun for me because I don't like putting myself out there and reach out to people. But one of the blurbs that I got is sort of like the culmination of how I wanted this book to land in the world, which is this is from Neil Shubin, who is the chair of the archaeology department at the University of Chicago. And he wrote a book called Your Inner Fish which I read right when I left newspapers and was trying to think about what to do with my career. And I wanted to write about science. And I read Your Inner Fish, which is the story of Neil Shubin's discovery of this fossil Tiktaalik, which is this like transitional animal that represents this like change between fish in the water and land dwelling vertebrates. And he found this fish on Ellesmere Island, which is like North of Canada. And it's from the Devonian, you know, 320 million years ago. And it's this hugely important fossil in the history of paleontology, um, the study of ancient bones. And 
he read the book. My editor reached out to him and his blurb was epic in scope and almost poetic in its narrative beauty. Our moon will change how you think about our planet, the moon and ourselves. Ooh. And I was like, trophy. Yeah, there's <laughs> a trophy. You did I was it. Like, that is what I wanted. <laughs> I, that it. is like, that is what I wanted. Even one person to think was that like, to think about the yourself and our culture in a new way because of this book. And so I felt like, okay, I'm good. <laughs> if, if Neil Schumann said that, I feel like I did my job. <laughs> Congratulations. Oh, that's, that's great. I love that. Well, I mean, you did your part, right? You did the thing. You wrote the book. You know, the thing exists and it is, you know, once it's out in the world, it's, you know, you have to sort of let it go and you don't, you can't control it anymore. But that you did the part you could control, which is wrote a really amazing book that a lot of people are going to love. Thanks. I hope so. Well, it's been such a pleasure having you on, Becky. Thank you so much for coming to Emerging Form. Thanks so much. Yeah. And those of you who are paid subscribers will get to hear a special bonus episode with Becky next week in which we will talk a little bit more about her creative process and some of the challenges she faced while writing the book. Thank you, Becky. Thanks for having me. You've been listening to Emerging Form. This is Rosemary Wattola-Tromer, and my co-host is science writer Christy Ashwanden. Our fabulous audio producer is Cherie Turner, and our music is created and performed by Kira Kopostansky and edited by Leah Shaw. Kate LaRue designed our logo, and Jack Mueller, of course, inspired our work and the name of this podcast. As he always said, you must obey the poem's emerging form. Until next time. Thanks for listening to Emerging Form. Did you know that for just a few bucks a month, you can become a paid subscriber and get bonus episodes every other week? Go to emergingform.substack.com to sign up. And if you really want to help us out, leave us a review on iTunes. Thanks for listening.